Well, I titled the sermon, It Should Have Been Me. It Should Have Been Me. We're going to be covering chapter 1 today uh, in the book of Leviticus. I want to give you just a bit of a refresher, because for those who weren't here with us when we went through the book of Exodus, this handoff is a, a, almost a seamless handoff. So let's move from Exodus into Leviticus. A quick review of Exodus. For 400 years, God's chosen people, the Israelites, were in Egypt, in slavery, and their cries were heard by the Lord. He raised up and sent them a deliverer in Moses, uh, really the least likely guy to be the mouthpiece of the Lord to the most powerful man on earth. And yet, God accomplished a supernatural deliverance of his people from the land of Egypt. He decimated the superpower of the known world in this day, just completely destroying their army and much of the land itself of Egypt. Um, many people were dead after the 10th plague finished, and finally Pharaoh said, fine, go, just go, get out of here, be, be rid of you. And as they went, they plundered Egypt. They took all the gold and all of the valuables from Egypt as they left. And uh, so here they are now in the wilderness, and they find themselves wandering in the wilderness and grumbling as well. We have wonderful victories and celebrations, and at the same time in Exodus, we have these just catastrophic failures and grumbling and sin. And so it's an amazing book that you see these contrasted. They come to Mount Sinai. As they are sustained, I, I want to mention that, they're sustained in the wilderness by this thing they called manna. And, and manna most literally means, what is it? Right? It's, just, it's this bread from heaven that arrives on the ground and it's kind of like a, a, a honey crisp type of little thing you eat in the morning and, and then it's gone. And God sends this supernatural food to his people and they grumble about it. So then he's like, okay, fine, you want meat? I'll bomb you with, hay, with, with quail, not hail, with, with quail, and so he drops a bunch of quail on them, and, and I'm thinking maybe the loudest grumblers, he knocked him in the head with a few of those birds, you know, <laughs> on the way down. So he's sustaining them miraculously. He has delivered them miraculously, and then he brings them to Mount Sinai, and he shows up with smoke and lightning and peals of thunder, and he gives Moses the law, the Ten Commandments, gives that, that covenant to Moses. And then part of the expression of that, oh, by the way, before he even got off the mountain and came down, they, they had built a golden calf, right? So rebellion from the beginning, rebellion at the giving of the law, and Moses was incensed. He ground the calf up and made them drink it as a result of their sin. So all of this beautiful success and beautiful not beautiful, horrible failure contrasted. Then the construction of the temple. Uh, God gives extremely detailed, precise instructions about how they are to create this mobile house of worship for their wandering in uh, the wilderness. And so they complete this work with lots of generosity and they, they, they in overlay all these things and it's just beautiful and finished. And then they have to prepare the priests and the clothing for the priests and all of the requirements there. It's all ready. It's all completed. And Exodus finishes with this. Listen to these final verses. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. 
and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter it. He couldn't enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, that's significant for us today. Uh, it's interesting to see this. Moses is not allowed in now. The presence of God has descended. He is there, and Moses is to be outside. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was on, uh, in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So something significant takes place because when Deuteronomy begins, it says that the Lord spoke to Moses in the tabernacle. Leviticus begins by saying the Lord spoke to Moses from. These words are significant. We start in Leviticus with the word from. We start in Deuteronomy with the word in. How do we get from the from to the in? That's the book of Leviticus. That's what we're going to un unfold and understand in these chapters. It's an amazing gift that he gives. Now, just a bit of a, a glimpse of what this may have been like at night, for example. Picture BP refinery times 10,000, okay? You ever seen the, the fire just at night? It's so cool. I, I loved living out there. Every now and then they do the, the turnaround and they're just blazing out all that extra stuff. Well, this would have been even more amazing. The pillar of fire. You're in your tent, okay? So you've got to put yourself in Israel's experience here. You're in your tent with your family. And as you are falling asleep, you see the glow of the pillar of fire, of God's presence in your camp. Everywhere you go at night, you see his presence. Everywhere you go in the day, the pillar of cloud is there. When it begins to move, you start pulling the stakes up and you follow wherever he goes. And when, when that pillar stops, you set up camp. And that's where we're going to be for a while. Forty years of this, until the sinful generation had all fallen and died. And God had prepared the younger generation to go and take the promised land, the holy land. Here's the tabernacle. We just kind of refresh our memory a little bit. The various aspects of the tabernacle itself and the brazen uh, laver uh, out there, kind of where the wash basin is, and then the brazen altar, um, tables where they would slaughter animals. I want you to see this kind of fresh in your memory because we're going to be living pretty heavily in this kind of uh, mindset, the tabernacle. See how it's laid out. And uh, you might, if you have a study Bible, just flip back over to, uh, to Exodus and look at some of these up close. Get, get fresh in your mind uh, as far as these details and, and have them clear so that you have a setting to put your feet on as we move through this book. It says, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. From the tent of meeting. Verse 1 in Leviticus. Now, the question is, why can Moses not go in? What prevents him from going in? I mean, you didn't get stuck out in the parking lot today. You were able to just come right in. That's a good thing, right? Something very different is happening for Moses. He is not able to go into this tent anymore because the presence of God is there. To give you some dimensions for this, the width of the tabernacle is about the width of this center section right here. And the distance from the front of it to the back of it is about from here to the soundboard, long, okay? The height is about 
to the bottom of these lights on this light bar. So picture that, okay? That's about the size of this mobile house of worship. And right where you are would have been the curtain that separated the outer area from the Holy of Holies, which is that perfect cube of space behind that area right there, all the way up, and then width and depth, okay? So you have a sense for its, its size and space. Moses is not in. He's out here. He's, he's standing off behind this area. God is speaking to him out from this place where his glory dwells now. The reason he cannot go in is because of this, the holiness of God, the holiness of God. So it's important for us as we come to Leviticus. I mean, this is probably the most reoccurring theme of the book of Leviticus. God is holy. So what I want to do is do just a crash course on the holiness of God before we get into the verses. Come with me all the way to Revelation chapter 4 where we get a glimpse into the very throne room of God right now, as it is right now. Listen to what John witnesses. From the throne of God came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. If I could push a button and have that be our experience right now, that would be so helpful, right? Picture the ground beneath you shaking and peals of thunder and bursts of lightning. Extremely intimidating. Before the throne were seven uh, burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, as it were, uh, there is, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. John's reaching to describe what he's seen. He's, he's seen this incredible, glorious scene of the throne room of God, much like Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 6 wrote down. Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures. Now, the the text goes on to explain all these amazing things about these creatures. They're hovering, and they have six wings, and with two of them, they, they hover, and with two, they cover their feet, and with the other two, they cover their eyes. Why would they do that? Cover their feet. Cover their eyes. The holiness of God. Listen to what they say. These These six-winged creatures are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say. Think of this. God created these creatures, and the purpose of their existence eternally is to hover around his throne and say these words with their eyes covered in humility and their feet covered in humility. They say over and over, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, why would they say that? Why not just say, holy is the Lord God Almighty? Because it's not enough. He is three times holy. It's as if they say, holy, holier, holiest. That's how holy he is. He is so holy that one holy isn't enough. Words fail us to describe the absolute perfection of his being. And these these creatures that hover, they point us to this holiness, the holiness of God. This is how I would say the holiness of God is, is understood. Two things. 
One, God is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is totally, completely pure, pure. And he is holy or completely, totally other. He is entirely separate from all moral impurity. There is no shadow. There is no sin, no stain, no darkness, no tinge of darkness in God. He is radiant in purity. And he is entirely distinct, set apart from all that he has made. Who is like the Lord our God? There is no one like me, declares the Lord, right? Nothing and no one can even come close to being like God is. He is holy. The holiness of God. This, this is good to remember. When you think, oh, God is holy, remember this. Holy pure and holy other. Those two realities, expressions of his holiness. So the question then begs, this is really the reoccurring question that Leviticus answers. How can a sinful and unholy people dwell in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God? How's that possible? This is the answer that Leviticus gives. It's not easy. It's actually quite dangerous if you're not careful. They saw what he did in Egypt. They understand what he's capable of. They also know how pure he is. So listen to the, really the, the heart and soul of Leviticus. Uh, if I was to pick a theme verse for the entire exposition, this would be it. This, this, this set of verses. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore. You see the connection? This is who I am. This is who you are. Consecrate yourselves. For, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with anything uh, swarming or that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. That's his requirement. That's his call. The problem is, how do we do that? You see, we, we can't do that. We are sinners. We are we have the stain of rebellion and sin. We, we are not holy, and we can all attest to that. We know this to be true. And so we have the introduction of offerings. This is the way of worship. How do you come before a holy God? You come with an offering, a burnt offering. That is chapter 1. Now, there are five offerings in the first chapters of Leviticus or sacrifices, we're going to look today at the burnt offering. Chapter 2 is the grain offering. Chapter 3 is the peace offering. And chapters 4 and 5 plus a little of 6 are the sin and guilt offerings. These are going to be considered next week, but primarily today the burnt offering. And there are three options, uh, really kind of a, a financial considerations for the burnt offering. Verses 3 through 9, for those who are well off, they bring the bull. For those who are uh, kind of in the medium of, of God's blessings financially, then they bring the sheep or the goat. And for those who are just poor and can hardly get by, they are given um, opportunity to bring of the birds, right? The, the pigeons. Uh, and so I, I just love how God does this. He doesn't say your worship is contingent upon what you have in the bank. 
He said, everybody come and worship. Come and worship, but proportionally so, right? So God was pleased, as pleased with the poor man's bird as he was with the rich man's bull. And we need to remember this. It's important for us to remember this. It's not like if you come with your offering before the Lord and it's just not enough, he's like, oh, really? That's all you got? No, no, really, I'm giving it sacrificially. Remember the widow with two pennies? She gave all that she had. And Jesus was blown away by that display. In contrast to the, the wealthy Pharisee who was making much of himself as he gives. So Kevin DeYoung says it this way, Biblical generosity is not measured by how much you give, but by how much it costs you when you give. You see the the connection here. We are to give generously. We are to give in a way that is sacrificial and proportional to the blessings that God has given to us. And so when someone says, well, how much do we give? How much should we give? I'm like, that's not my job to answer. That's between you and the Lord. You, You decide in your own heart, but do so joyfully, not under compulsion. Do so sacrificially, joyfully, like, because if you're not, if it's not costing you anything, then it's not generous, right? And do so proportionally. So that's just a, a fascinating little piece that we glimpse here out of Leviticus before we even really get a feel for where this is unfolding. Let me just read this text to you, and then we'll zero in on a few of these things. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or the flock. In his offering is a burnt off- if his offering is a burnt offering from the Lord, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the, tent, uh, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. Those words are significant. They may be accepted before the Lord. We go on. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the tent of uh, the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall put the fire uh, on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, option two, if you're a little uh, less, uh, you know, financially blessed in that way, um, you bring one from the flock, uh, a burnt offering from the flock, from sheep or from goats, and he shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. He shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood, on the fire, on the altar. But its uh, entrails and legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it uh, and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, 
with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And lastly, the bird. If his offering is burnt offering of birds, he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. Note that. There's a distinguishing mark there. That's not random any birds, but doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its content and cast it beside the altar on the east side for the place of ashes. Uh, He shall tear it open by its wings, but not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay, so that's chapter 1. You see the details given, the care to each part of this passage that unfolds. Let's zero in on verse 3, and I want to make a few observations as we think about these, these verses here. There's some specific instructions that are worth noting. He shall offer a male without blemish, bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. So there's something happening here in the offerer who's coming to obey the Lord. Think about this. This is God's call to the people who have been slaves, right? Think their generation, 400 years they've been slaves, and they are called to bring offerings to the Lord as part of their worship. This is an act of faith. This is an agreement with the Lord, right? I'm coming and I'm bringing this offering because he has said this is what I am to do. So I'm to offer a male without blemish. This is a domestic animal. This, this is not just a wild animal. You don't just go out and, and, and rope a coyote, right? And then drag it into the altar. Here's what I got, you know, found him scrounging around my tent. Take that. No, that doesn't work. It's not wild animals, Domestic animals. But here's what's interesting about this. Domesticated animals are calm. They tend to be quiet. And think of the anticipation of the sacrifice of Christ. He was led like a lamb is led to the slaughter. Quietly. Right? He, he was silent before his shears. Uh, and so you have, there's, there's a certain calmness about the animal that is brought in. This is not just some wild donkey, for example. Also, it's to be a male. Male animals were highly esteemed in this day, extremely valuable. The price of a male animal was much higher. Uh, It was to be unblemished. So this is not a three-legged bull. Uh, This is not a mad cow-diseased bull, right? This is your prize bull, the one you have raised. And you were like, if if you were to pick out of your herd... Your favorite one, it'd be that one. That's the one that God says, that's mine. That's the one you're to bring. Now just think, slavery in Egypt, now we're in the wilderness, we're surviving on manna and quail dropping out of the sky. Think of how many people we could feed with that bull. I mean, you just step back and say, well, just a basic question of resources here. We are surviving in the wilderness. And God says, I want the best of your animals, the most prized animals in your flocks, your herds, and among the birds. Those are mine. And that's what you are to bring when you worship me. This is truly sacrificial. 
costly, unblemished. Why unblemished? All of these verses make sense when you think about Christ. He made him who knew no sin. Jesus Christ was the sinless sacrifice. Therefore, the lamb had to be spotless, perfect, without blemish. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, Malachi says to the people, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. Malachi comes against the people in the Old Testament toward the end, and they were bringing their leftovers. They were bringing their lame animals, the, the, the stuff that was just like wandering around and not prized or looked upon with favor. And that's the ones they were like, well, if we've got a sacrifice, just give them this thing. You know, just that did not please. That angered the Lord. It was evil. So too, my friends, we should not treat the Lord as if he is a secondary thought. Give him leftovers. When we come, we are to give him all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to give him of the first fruits, the best. Why? Because he is holy, holy, holy. Which means what? He's worthy. He's worthy. He deserves the very best. He's the one who's given us everything. Every good and perfect gift is from him. And so this would have been the wrestling match for the sinful heart in the camp. As they hear these instructions, they're just like, wait, hold on. You mean my prized bull? Yeah, that one. That's how serious this is. Now, a substitute sacrifice, verse 4. A substitute sacrifice. The uh, offerer shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. This is a fascinating thing that takes place. So, the offerer would choose the prized animal and then bring the prized animal into the tent or to the to the, the court outside of the tent, and he would stand there. And before the animal was killed, the offerer would take his hand, and, and the word is more than just flop your hand on the head. It was a pressing. It was a, a willful, purposeful, meaningful leaning on or pressing on. Shmiha in, in the Hebrew. Uh, the, the, the practice was the leaning on. And in this is the transfer of guilt. The transfer of my sin now moves from me to this animal. What has this animal done? Well, nothing. I'm the sinner. But this animal is going to take what I deserve. His experience should be my experience. And this is a confession moment where there would be a prayer or even a song of confession where we say basically, Lord, we agree with you that our sin is serious. It's grievous. And what is about to happen to this animal should happen to me. That's what my sin deserves. That's how holy you are and how unholy I am, how grievous my sin is in your sight. Hmm. A transfer of sin and guilt and then an identification, right? So 
everything that's about to happen here to this animal should really happen to me. That's where my sermon title comes into play. It should have been me. That should have been me right there. Well, let's see how this unfolds. Uh, to make atonement for him is the, is the words used. Atonement is a word that is a, a, a frequent biblical word, but it's an important word for us to feel and, and really understand. One little play on words that can help you remember what at, uh, atonement means is to say it this way. It, it means at one mint. There's a unifying work, right? So the separation that has been caused because of my sin is now being addressed. And my sin is now being covered by the death of this animal and the satisfaction of God's wrath against that sin is such that now he can look upon me with favor. This is the old covenant. This is how it would be practiced again and again and again and again, over and over. More bulls, more goats, more sheep, more doves. Why? More sin. When I sin, I see it. I agree with God. It's serious. I deserve this. Instead of me, this animal takes the wrath. Expiation and propitiation placed upon an animal, a substitute sacrifice. Hmm. It was a graphic reminder. We live in a day that, I mean, we go to Hagen or Safeway, we go to the meat section, and it's all done for us, right? This, most of us, some of you do, but most of us don't butcher our own meat. I want you to picture this. A family journeying together, following the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, seeing the presence of God, and then realizing how serious their sin is, right? And then choosing a prized animal from your little flock or herd, and then watching your dad lead this animal into the courtyard. And then seeing the throat of this animal slit. And the blood pump into the basin to catch the life of this animal. And then given to the priests. The priests would take that blood and throw it against the altar. This is where atonement happens. This is where the payment is given. This is how we deal with sin. Hmm. They would choose. They would slaughter the animal. The priest would take the blood and throw it against the altar. The offerer then would flay or skin the animal and cut it into pieces that were manageable for the priest then to carry and arrange on top of the burnt offering fire. Just got to got to feel this, okay? Um, you you got to smell this, honestly. This is a bloody mess. You know how much blood is in a bull? You, you know how horrific cutting a, an animal of that size open smells? You know how bloody the offerer would have been by the end of this work? He would have, his arms, he would have been splattered. He would have had blood all over him. And so would the priests. All day long. This was what worship entailed. The worship of a holy God. Why death? Why blood? Because of sin. Because of sin. And because of holiness. You see, we got to feel this. 
This was a tangible, experiential form of worship of a holy God from a sinful people. They would then take and wash the legs because you can't have any dung uh, coming in contact with the priest, and so they would wash the legs and, and, and the guts. I saw the guys you know, in the first service, they're like, yeah, that's gross, man. I've dealt with a deer before. That smells terrible. You take all the guts out and you have to wash them and then hand them to the priest. And they take all of it. All of the chunks of the animal are arranged on the fire. And then this, I, I just, you know, every now and then I, I forget about what I'm grilling and things go horribly wrong. <laughs> right? You, you know that line where your burgers smell amazing and then they're actually burning. And they don't smell amazing. They smell burned. It's that, that acid, that, that sharp stench of burning meat. That's what it smells like when you burn a carcass. And all of the aroma of this fire consuming this animal. We've got to smell that. We have to engage our senses in this experience and ask the question, why all of this? Because sin is so serious and God's holiness is so revered and protected and regarded by Him. It is the way that He has arranged for an unholy people to worship Him and to cover their sin. It is viewed by God as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The word pleasing there is also understood as acceptable. This is an acceptable sacrifice, a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice unto the Lord. This is done in faith. It's performed in faith and obedience. He is commanded, we will obey. He says this is serious. We agree it's serious. And so we will do this again and again and again as we wander in the wilderness. One of the important questions to ask for New Testament people is, as we look back to the book of Leviticus, wait a second, what about the actual work of, of the sin of the individual? Okay, it's transferred to, to atone for or to cover by the death of the animal, yes, but, but done in faith, yeah, but what about justice? What about the justice of God for, that's, that's held against the sinner? How is that dealt with by the death of an animal? And the answer is, it isn't. It isn't. It says in the book of Hebrews that he has passed over those who have sinned as they have offered in faith and they have obeyed the Lord and sacrificed in this way. Those sacrifices have, have served to cover their sins, but, but truly to address them with forgiveness requires something more. It is a faith-filled anticipation that there is a sacrifice coming that will fulfill all of the work of Old Testament sacrifices. Someone has to die to deal with the sin that I have committed. This animal has covered, I have been atoned for, I've been set free. Yes, what a, what a beautiful uh, reality, but, but it's not complete 
until the Messiah arrives. And this is where we understand even Abraham and Isaac. Just quickly come with me back to Genesis. God comes to Abram and he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. You know where that is? Jerusalem. Go to Jerusalem. What we understand as Jerusalem nowadays. And offer him there as, listen, a burnt offering to the Lord on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Now, this would have shocked Abram because God is not a God who ever delights in child sacrifice, but here he commands it, and Abram obeys the Lord because he believes that God is able to even raise the dead. He knows this is the son of the promise. He knows Isaac is part of the covenant line, so he's willing to go through with this, trusting that God can even raise him. As Abram has Isaac tied and on the altar, on the mountain of the Lord, and the knife is in the air, he's told to stop. Don't touch, don't hurt, don't kill your son. And his eyes are directed over to a ram that was caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abram went and he, and he, he took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering, look at the word, instead of his son. So Abram, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. That's significant. And as it is said to this day, Moses speaks, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What's the it? What is going to take place on that very mountain, that very place, the cross of Jesus Christ? So the burnt sacrifices that were in place even before Leviticus pointed us to the Messiah, the work that would be done. Isaiah 53 shows us this. The ultimate sacrifice is the fulfillment of every Old Testament sacrifice. It's the thing that addresses the very sins that have been passed over in God's grace. He was crushed for our transgressions Uh, wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's the substitute sacrifice. You ask, what is all of this about? What? What is all of this commanded for? It's to point us to him. It always was. It's always been about Jesus. Jesus is on every page of the book of Leviticus. If you understand the whole point of all this shadow, it's to point to the reality of the ultimate sacrifice. It's to reveal to us how serious our sin is, how holy God is, and that there is hope in Jesus alone for the sinner. The cross of Jesus Christ is the epicenter of God's revelation. It is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament and the celebration of all of the New. So how were Old Testament saints saved? They were saved by faith in the coming Messiah, the sacrifice, the Lamb who would be slain. How are New Testament saints saved? They are saved by faith in the Messiah. We now know his name is Jesus, a finished work. 
all are saved the same way. It's always been plan A. It continues on. So as we move through the book of Leviticus, I challenge you, look for Christ. Look for the cross. Watch for the gospel. It's everywhere. Just like it was in Genesis and just like it was in Exodus. It's a beautiful thing. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on that tree. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. What is that? The wrath-satisfying payment for our sins. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The transfer. When you think about the offerer placing his hand upon that animal, Think of your life and the effect of you placing your faith upon Christ. The transfer is real. All of my sin upon Jesus Christ. All of his righteousness now imputed to my account. That's what it's about. It's to point us to Jesus. So our response this morning, I just want to ask this question. When you consider that burning sacrifice, that blood that was spilled and then skinned and chopped up and entrails washed and all of the work of arranging of that fire and then the lighting of that fire, you stand back and you see it burn and you smell it. Have you come to the place in your life where you say, in agreement with God, that should have been me. That, that's, that's what I deserve. I am a sinner. I am a rebel. I have railed against God. I have lived as if He does not exist. I have disregarded the God who is and, and, and is worthy of all praise. I've tried to write my own story, run my own way. I am unworthy, and He is infinitely worthy. One of the problems, friends, we have in our day is that we just don't see sin as that big a deal. Right? If this is the bridge illustration, we're all like, what gap? What do you mean there's a pit between me and God? If you go to someone up on the street and you're like, hey, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, they're like, yeah. What's not to love? Right? What do you mean? Sin? Increasingly, we live in a post-Christian world where, where the concepts and the awareness of our unworthiness is frowned upon. It's looked upon as low self-esteem. You know, oh, you're living defeated. You need to live victoriously. You need to focus on how good and worthy and, and awesome you are. And I would say, wrong. Not according to the book of Leviticus. We should regularly be with these people, reminded that that should be me. That, that cross, that should be my cross. Because God is holy, holy, holy. And I am a sinner, a rebel by choice and by divine verdict. I have committed cosmic treason. The only thing that keeps my life from being snuffed out at this very moment is His grace. 
I don't deserve this life, and I certainly don't deserve the gift of his son. This is what makes the gospel amazing. So three takeaways here today. Christian, may you be impressed upon with the clarity and the beauty and the purity of the holiness of God. He is holy. He is worthy. We are not. That's the second point. The seriousness of our sin. We, we need to feel that more in our day. It is not low self-esteem. It's accurate assessment. We are sinners. We are lawbreakers. And it's a big deal. The fires of hell stand as an eternal witness of the burnt sacrifice. It's as if they, they say to us, you're going to burn or someone's going to burn for you. There's only two options. Which leads us to the wonder of the gospel. The wonder of the gospel. God is so good, so loving to the likes of us, the rebels, the haters of God, that he would send his son to take upon himself all of the wrath that I deserve and to, as it were, burn him in my place. His body was raised up for me. His blood was shed for me, for my sin. He died the death that I deserved. And praise God, he's victorious. And he offers life to all sinners who look to him as their only hope in this life and the next. Let's pray. Oh God, we give praise to you for loving us in this way. I thank you for the tangible experience this morning of even just smelling the smoke of that burning carcass, seeing the blood run out, to, to, to experience what that may have been like back then. So real, so horrible. The death of that animal pointing to a death that I deserve that we deserve. Oh, Father, you are holy. You are worthy. You are holy, holy, holy. Forgive us for thinking so little about how pure and radiant you are and how other you are set apart. Oh, Father, forgive us for thinking so highly of ourselves and so little of our sin. Impress upon us the weight of your holiness such that we would feel the offense of our sin and run to the cross with all our might. We delight in our Savior, Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you for your work to die in our place. We thank you for your willingness to obey the Father and, and to take my place on a cross that should have been mine. Thank you for the victory that you have accomplished and for the authority that is yours. Oh, Father, we delight in this gospel that we have. We pray that we would be a people amazed by it all the more when we consider your holiness and our sinfulness. We praise you now as we prepare to take of the Lord's Supper together. In Jesus' name, amen.